episode 73, How Healthcare Organizations Can Prevent Reactive Fire Drills. Today, I speak with Chris Cornu from SG2. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Let's talk about preventative medicine, organizational style. The problem with allowing an underlying organizational or market condition become acute is the exact same problem as letting an underlying health condition become ER ready. It's costly, it's resource inefficient, and it generally is a vicious cycle that doesn't tend to end optimally. Today, I speak with Chris Cornu, who is a senior VP over at SG2, focusing on SG2's Center for the Future. Chris's goal is to help healthcare organizations like hospital systems or life science companies really understand what is likely to happen in the future so that it's possible to get ahead of the problem and prevent it from happening in the first place. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by the Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Chris. Great. Thanks so much, Stacy. It's a pleasure to be here. You are currently overseeing the Center for the Future over there at SG2. What does that mean? <laughs> it's really one of the coolest jobs I think anybody can have. It's really taking a look at the most forward-looking views of where we think healthcare is going to go over the next 15, 20 years, and then being able to relate it back to the here and now. We try to make it very applicable to what's going on today and helping organizations to plan on how they're going to address that longer-term view as well. When you say helping organizations, who do your customers tend to be? Yeah, most of our customers are hospitals and health systems across the United States. We have some international clients as well. But primarily, it's small, large academic medical centers, teaching hospitals. It's the full gamut of hospitals and health systems across the U.S. We also have some life sciences clients as well that may have some specific needs that we can help them with, too. Well, that kind of makes sense because you were formerly the CEO of a hospital. So this seems like a, a natural progression for you. Uh, yeah, and it's great because I can speak the language and I know what it's like to be on the inside doing this. And now being with SG2, I can relate better and help our clients to recognize exactly what's going on based upon the fact that I was there as well. As we are thinking about healthcare, what are the what if questions that you ask if that's the way that you go about commencing the operation? And I'm glad you used the what if, because when we think about healthcare and especially with what we do at SG2, it's always kind of framed around that what if question. What if this particular thing happens and what's it going to mean to your organization? And during this last year, during 2015, we've been spending a lot of time with our clients asking what ifs, such as, you know, what if 50% of your volumes in any given service line became virtual? And you can think, if you're a hospital or health system, you hear that question and you're thinking about, well, what really will that mean to us? It kind of forces you to think about a number of different things. Where is my virtual health platform? Do I have a virtual health platform? Is it across all my service lines, just one or two? What if my volumes go away? And how are we looking at those volumes differently? It's not so much transactions. It's looking much more differently than we did in the past. 
Another what if would be, you know, what if more than half of your revenue came from channels that you don't yet have? And that's real for hospitals and health systems. And some folks, as we've been spending time talking about this in 2015, people have said, well, that means that I've had a successful strategy because they've been able to diversify their channels in such a way that they're now getting revenue from different places that they hadn't traditionally in the past. But what that says is you need to start thinking about the different channels that you have and how you end up relating with those in the future. So what's a channel? A channel, it's, it's that classic channel strategy. So channel is how you potentially relate with a consumer. So it could be the hospital emergency department is a channel or retail healthcare as a channel. But it's those different ways that you would end up engaging with patients for the services you provide, keeping in mind that many of those channels are now existing outside of the hospital space. Mm. And I would say probably a third what if would be what if more than half of primary care was provided through retail clinics? And that's something which is really real. And that's a potential. And so what does that mean if you have retail clinics that are potentially not partnering with you, but coming into your particular market and taking potential volume. And so what does that mean for you as well? And keep in mind, too, when we talk about retail clinics, it's really that larger retail health strategy. So what are you doing in order to engage consumers where they are and at their convenience? Because they're driven by different factors than they were before. So just three of those what-if questions that, and there's many others, but three of those that kind of help organizations to really consider what could this potentially mean for their organization and how they respond at that point. Give me an example of a situation that a hospital system got themselves into where they questioned their relevance or, or were fearful of an uncertain future. There are lots of examples of where I think this could be played out. For example, you know, a hospital health system hasn't really thought more future focused on where the volumes are going to be in a particular market. And especially as perhaps they were caught off guard with regard to that shift, what's happening towards value-based care, the shift from the inpatient, the outpatient setting, et cetera. And they recognize that they need to be thinking much differently now than they had traditionally in the past. And as most hospitals have thought in the last couple of decades, and so they recognize that they need to now play in a different space. And there are lots of factors that have influenced this currently. You can think about the shift of value, but consumerism is a big trend, of course, that's happening. And so hospitals need to understand how they're going to play in that space. Technology is evolving. And that's a big thing that we've been focusing on this last year, which is what does disruption look like as these new novel types of concepts or technologies are coming in and how do organizations think about how they're going to deal with that and how are they going to respond to that or are they not going to respond at all? So there's lots of these different things that can come into play where a hospital or health system may say, you know what, we are not prepared. We have not thought this through and we need to have help to make sure that we are heading in the right direction. And that's usually when they call us to you too. I'm going to take the last thing that you said first because coincidentally, I was reading an article this morning about Vinod Kosla. Kosla. Kosla, yes. yeah. He yep, was yep. he was recently quoted in a very controversial statement saying that automation and technology will replace 80% of physicians in the near future. Oh boy. I know. So this reminded me of where you, you were just talking about technology and disruption. I mean, do you feel like the main and I definitely have an opinion on this, but you go first. 
<laughs> do, 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 do you feel that the main advantage of technology is displacing physicians? W- would that be your take as well? Uh, I definitely don't think that the main purpose for the technology is to displace or replace physicians or clinicians, etc. However, I do see the technology evolution and a lot of what probably he was speaking about as ways to augment some of the challenges we're going to have in the future. I mean, with limited workforce, with challenges with physicians, and the complement that we need in order to take care of this aging population, we know that there are going to be shortages out there of physicians as well as clinicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, etc., as well as technicians across the board. And some of this technology, such as machine learning or different ways that you can look at algorithms to help make sure that you're assessing information in charts or imaging studies, et cetera, will just help us to be much more efficient in the future. As a result, we may see some of these shortages addressed through this technology. And I'm not saying that this is going to replace all the clinicians and the physicians, et cetera, but I think that this can help to address some of the challenges we'll have in the future. Yeah, that's exactly where I was headed with that. I mean, it seems like it was just framed wrong that there's certainly too few physicians to handle the workload demand without diminishing outcomes, but also the idea that computers are far better at detecting patterns. I mean, humans are are unequivocally proven superior to figure out what to do with how to treat a patient once a pattern is detected, but there's just no way that a human can compete with artificial intelligence as it relates to putting a huge disparate sum of data together and and figuring out what the pattern is amongst that data. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And that's where you see some of this advancement. And and you can hear about robots taking over the world or artificial intelligence is going to be this big evil thing. But by and large, I think that all of these are going to be additive to our workforce to help us be much more successful. And that's where the machine learning and the deep learning, and to your point, where computers are able to think for themselves and to process millions and millions of pieces of data in order to get to one solution much more quickly than what a human can. And it's going to be, I think, additive to the workforce as opposed to replacing it. Is that what you would consider disruption? And if so, how does that relate back to health systems and, and what they should be doing? I do think that that is an example of disruption. And the way that we've thought about this at SU2 is, you know, it's any force, regardless of whether it originates within or outside of the healthcare industry, that can fundamentally alter a clinical or business model. And, and it's important distinction because so much of the disruption is coming from outside of the healthcare industry. And it's not to say that we're not capable of creating our own disruption. But there are so many dollars that are being poured into coming up with solutions and new innovative ways for people to address some of the issues that we have in healthcare right now that so much of the disruption is coming from outside of our industry. And that's an example of that. And there are lots of others that are out there as well. What would be a very specific example of disruption that's coming from outside the industry that is, you feel, very much affecting the way that healthcare stakeholders are operating right now? Well, think about everything from a technology or a mobile app perspective or mobile phones, et cetera. I mean, when the iPhone was created, it disrupted, you know, probably 15 or so different industries. You know, how often do you now go and 
physically pick up a calculator as opposed to using it on your iPhone? Or how often do you actually go physically pick up a flashlight as opposed to using the flashlight that's in your phone? And speaking for myself, I never pick up those devices. I use my iPhone now. But that's the example of where this technology has really shifted and changed how we live our daily lives. And to that point in healthcare, think about all the different ways that you know mobile apps are going to change the way that hospitals and health systems relate differently with the patients and the consumers that are in the markets. And this is where consumerism is coming in a big time. And so it's shifting and changing how we as hospitals and health systems are thinking about engaging with and creating linkages and channels with patients that we hadn't before. So it's mobile phones, it's applications like that, it's the retail clinics that are in place, it's retail health, it's everything now that is being driven from a patient's uh, out-of-pocket costs because of the higher deductibles that are in place. So all these different things are really disrupting the industry. And again, as I mentioned before, it's going to be incredibly important for hospitals and health systems to figure out how they are going to relate to these different disruptions that are in place. I've been jotting notes down while you've been talking, Chris, and I, um, I'm getting stressed out just listening to you. So <laughs> <laughs> just <Me too. laughs> thinking like a health system here, you know, you had mentioned all these disruptors, value-based care, patient volumes, consumerism, technology, you know, including mobile just changes in the way that consumers re relate to technology. You mentioned retail health. Obviously, SG2 gets called in as an expert to help health systems or, or customers, you know, you mentioned life science as well, just deal with all of these factors which are flying at them, you know, in a swarm. <laughs> you know, what advice would you have for a health system or, or what is SG2's methodology in order to make sense of this chaos, really? Well, and that's, I think, where SG2 is pretty uniquely positioned to help out. One, you know, aside from the analytics which SG2 has, which helps to think, you know, 10 years in the future, here's where your inpatient, outpatient volumes are going to be through their impact of change forecast, which takes into account public policy changes, innovation, technology changes, and other things. That's one way that organizations are able to get a better sense of where things are going in their markets and then for their organization. Let me just interrupt because you're using that term patient volumes. Could you just explain that a little bit? Like what exactly do you mean by is it just quantity? Is it what diseases these people have? Like what do you mean by that? Yeah, by patient volume, what I was referring to in some of the analytics that are in place at SG2 are geared around inpatient discharges as one example of what that looks like. And it's important to look at them by disease because that says a lot more than just, you know, one transaction by a particular discharge around a heart disease or something like that. So you have to look by disease. And the same thing on the outpatient perspective, you're looking at that by the number of encounters or the number of visits that you end up having. And all that is what is kind of the, the bigger scope of where volumes currently exist right now. I think in the future, though, we'll be looking much more differently around those because we'll be looking at covered lives. We'll be looking at populations in different ways. And that's where the shift will take place from kind of how we measure things currently to where we'll be needing to take a look at these broader populations in the future around, you know, name your definition for population health. But that's what that's what we're going to be talking about as we go forward the next five, 10 years. Let's drill down into that for a sec, because I think that's a really important point. I mean, I know it's fuzzy in my mind, so I'm going to assume that there's others out there that are equally so. so 
So you had said that currently right now people are thinking about inpatients by disease. But, you know, what immediately occurred to me as soon as you said that is that well, most patients get, I'm sure, they get admitted to the hospital not because they have a striking case of one thing. It's probably a constellation of various things which add up to an acute event. And then as we talk about populations, the first thing that came to my mind is that this whole revelation, and I'm sure if anyone had sat back to think about it 10 years ago, they would have come to the same conclusion. It's just that no one did. That, you know, sometimes the most important factor in someone's care is car service, not necessarily what goes on at the hospital or making sure there's a, you know, a porta potty on the first floor of someone's house. <laughs> you know, as opposed to that's probably the best way to keep someone from falling, not necessarily treating them with a biphosphonate. So could you just get into a little bit more specifics about, you know, what exactly do you mean by this shift and what exactly is a population health metric that people should start maybe paying attention to? Well, I, I think that part of it is going to be how well do we keep patients in their own communities, as opposed to having to be admitted to a hospital for a particular ailment or disease. And that gets to your point, I think that you're looking to make around kind of the social care or those environmental factors and all those that kind of take a place, those social determinants of health, if you will. And those are all pieces of the bigger puzzle, which actually have a greater impact on somebody's overall health than a particular clinical disease in many cases. So what type of environment are they living in at home? Is it supportive of them maintaining and achieving their optimal health? Or are there situations and environmental factors that are influencing what their overall health is and perhaps taking it to a point where they're not healthy at all. And so this is where there's that huge intersection among a lot of different factors. It's what are we providing with regard to public health in, in the settings around particular geographic areas and urban settings and rural settings, et cetera? What are we doing in, in order to help maintain and to improve one's overall health? What are we doing then from a healthcare perspective and accessing in different ways? A metric that is currently used right now is you know, potentially avoidable admissions as an indication where they are looking to say for a particular disease, it's not to say this patient won't be admitted, but that if everything is done appropriately, that patient should be able to remain outside of the hospital for their care. And this is where you get to other sites of care. This is where you get to other ways that you can engage with a patient instead of them having to go to the hospital. And that could be through retail care channels. It could be through urgent care. It could be virtual health channels. And that's where there's this, I think, strong need to manage patient populations such that they don't have to get into the hospital. And there's lots of ways, and there are people that are much smarter than I am about that SG2, that can provide certain further direction around what that would look like. But it's creating the channels and the opportunities to help make sure that patients are remaining healthy outside of the hospital. And the term that I use a lot when I work with folks, especially around a definition around population health, is we're looking to create healthy communities. All right. We were talking about how we could go about thinking about how to manage the constellation of variables and change that is hitting, you know, every healthcare stakeholder really hard right now. And the first thing that we talked about uh, or that you brought up 
was this making sure we're measuring the right thing. So, you know, you, you had started out by saying that the first thing that people tend to measure or in the past people have measured like what is our average A1C of our patient population. But now I'm getting the impression that what is average A1C or average blood pressure, you know, like things which are clinical markers are, are starting to transition to metrics, which are, for example, you know, how many patients that were discharging really shouldn't come back. Did I summarize that well or did I miss something? Again, I think that there's a lot of different things that we're going to be measuring. And some of that is, yes, how can we make sure that we keep patients from going to the hospital? That's the potentially avoidable admission piece of it. But we're still going to be needing to measure those traditional metrics as well to make sure that we understand somebody's health and that they're getting the care they need to. But it's it's going to be also understanding what those ideal outcomes are for patients. I think one thing that as a healthcare system we have not necessarily focused a lot on is what are the ideal outcomes? And that's where I think we're moving as a healthcare system from checkbox type medicine to where we are thinking, okay, we've delivered aspirin upon arrival, check, we've done this, we've done that, to now focusing a little bit more on what it means to have the outcomes. Value-based purchasing has focused more on that, but also if we start asking patients from the very beginning, what is your ideal outcome? By going through um, this process with us, what is it that you want to achieve as an overall outcome, and how can we help to make sure you get there? For a particular patient, it could be, you know, they want to be, um, they want to run in a marathon again, or they want to reduce the amount of time that they're at home as opposed to work, or it could be as simple as, you know, they want to make sure that they can live their life without having to take um, an inhaler for their asthma or something like that. But it's those outcomes that are going to be important and also based within some of the social as well as the environmental issues that we spoke about as well. And I love this, the second factor that you, you're talking about here, which is understanding ideal outcomes, because that brings together a number of in my head, were disparate topics that were kind of floating around, like, for example, palliative care, you know, in other words, advanced directives and that whole end of life topic that, you know, that there could be a wild divergence between what the, you know, healthcare professionals believe would be the ideal outcome and what the patient is actually looking for, which might not be this very aggressive treatment, which they are unlikely to survive. So you've been you've been reading a lot and hearing a lot in the press the last six to twelve months, haven't you? It's it's been it's been so big as far as being reported on that a good death, or thinking about what the ultimate outcome needs to be, and that a patient can hopefully make a decision about how they want to spend their last days. You're absolutely spot on about the palliative care world and how it's had a renewed focus, which is fantastic because I believe hospitals. And more specifically, physicians who have been passionate about this work have been struggling for years and years and years to get this a little bit more heightened as an awareness. And now I think it's starting to come. But palliative care is a great example with that. Yes. And then the other random or other topic that I also could see folding very neatly into this understanding what the ideal outcome is, is this idea of treat to target, which I've heard it called. In other words, if you're dealing with a condition like diabetes, it's very easy to know whether a patient is under control or not because there's quantitative markers which indicate this patient is under control or blood pressure. But there's so many other conditions. Like I was speaking to uh, Ashish Arijak, actually from, from Sinai about how do you care for IBS? 
you know, irritable bowel um, syndrome, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, like who's doing well? There's no test you can give someone where the number comes back and you're like, yes, you're, you're under control or rheumatoid arthritis or, or any of the pain conditions. I mean, one of the reasons why opioids get overprescribed, for example, is that what how, how do you say that your someone's pain is controlled? So, you know, understanding what outcome you're shooting for and really getting a clear understanding of that, I really can see how that is a big deal. And I I totally agree. And there's some international work around this as well. There's an organization called ICHOM, which is, I believe, the International Consortium for Healthcare Outcomes Measurement. And that's their whole goal is to address those top 50 diseases globally and help to identify what those optimal outcomes would be and would mean for folks. And instead of having the conversation towards the end of the experience with the patient, they're professing and trying to get folks to think that having that conversation at the very beginning of it is going to be just as meaningful, if not more meaningful for patients in order to help them achieve what's meaningful to them, right, to their outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we got, let's uh, let's do the right analytics. We got, let's understand ideal outcomes. I'm really liking where this is going, Chris. <laughs> is there... <laughs> This, was, this wasn't at all what we planned on, was it? <laughs> That's how I roll. <laughs> I like to take guests by surprise. Um, so is are there any other, I'm going to say, large areas that SG2 comes in and thinks about relative to how, how to help a health system or a healthcare stakeholder really get their hands around all of this uncertainty? Well, I think the part of what SG2 also does is Thinking about those leading, those next leading practices as opposed to kind of the current ones. So with all the things that you've mentioned or that we've spoken about already, one of the things that SG2 tries to do, whether it's 10 to 15 years in the future or 30 years in the future or whether it's in the next two to three years is there's a lot of really smart people at SG2. I'm not, not myself, but a lot of other smart people ask you to. And what they do is they focus on kind of understanding what those current and those future best practices are. And that's part of the intelligence group that's in place there. So I think that that horizon scanning, which is something else I was going to get to about the ways that people can think differently about what's coming next and specific to population health and different metrics and understand the analytics that are in place are all very important. And I think the other thing that SG2 needs to help folks think about, and this is a way clients can engage with SG2 differently, is through that horizon scanning that I mentioned. And the horizon scanning, in a lot of ways, gets us back to that whole disruption topic in technology. And from that perspective, making sure that organizations, healthcare organizations, hospitals, health systems, know what's coming so that they figure out how they can respond to it is incredibly important. And it's more than just you know a typical, all right, well, I see this that's going to be out there. I read this in the news. Okay, so let's go ahead and do the same thing here. That's not going to be meaningful. It's more of this is all the stuff that's happening that potentially could impact us. How are we thoughtfully going to consider how this may make um, some sort of difference in our hospital and health system in the future. And so that's the big thing I think that needs to be a focus as well. Do you often get hospital systems that have the wherewithal to 
plan for that? In other words, I, I see kind of a trend in hospitals, very reactive. And I'm certainly not, you know, stating this as any sort of judgment because there's just if the if there's five alarm fires every single day, it's kind of hard to be proactive. I mean, do you see hospital systems? Is it the job of the the board of directors or the CEO or, you know, like who in, in a hospital is really has the time to sit back and, and do this future planning? That's a great question. I, th- I think you're spot on is that oftentimes organizations don't have the latitude of their flexibility in order to start thinking about that future state, which is why I think in many ways we have people that are constantly being reactive. And that's just the nature of what's going on. You're right. We are all responding to so many different things that are coming at us. And it's hard to spend that time thinking much more future focused. However, there are some organizations that I think have done great jobs at doing this, and they have put into place, I think, some really good ways that are good examples of how they can thoughtfully consider what's coming at them and then evaluate what that looks like. And oftentimes, this is done through centers for innovation. Not every hospital health system needs to have a center for innovation. They can be partnered with others that are part of a larger collaborative towards looking at this, share ideas. That's one way they can do this. They can have consortiums that are put together to help them more collectively figure out this is what's coming at us. This is what we as a larger group of 20, 30 hospitals, this is how we can potentially respond to this, not only just as a group, but also locally at our own organization. So there are different ways, I think, that are used across the industry to make sure that people are responding to or at least thinking about what's coming down the road. But to your point... I don't think that's happening as widely as it needs to. And that's where SG2 can help to help them think things through. The quote that I often use within my own organization is, we can't be too busy mopping up the floor to turn off the faucet. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And then there's there's actually a cartoon that that describes that very well. I don't know if you've seen that or not, but that's exactly right. Exactly right. We're not looking further upstream in order to figure out what the problem is. And unfortunately, the issue is that we get ourselves into this evil cycle that we get. I mean, it's like the uh, seven habits of highly successful people. I mean, it's like this to a T that we doom ourselves to this unending reactive cycle uh, if unless we can figure out how to get ahead of it. Mm -hmm. And, and, And what stops that cycle is usually a visionary leader over the organization that recognizes that we need to be much more thoughtful about our approach. And that we need to be proactive as opposed to being reactive constantly. And and you start to see that. And this goes to another topic that you know I don't think we have time to talk about today. But it's that the leader that we need here and now for hospitals and health systems, which is much different than the type of hospital leader that we needed 15, 20 years ago. And that's starting to play out as you have more consolidation that's in place. You have more hospitals and health systems that are partnering together. You need to have a different type of leader now than you have in the past. So what are the top you know, three things on someone's r- resume that's going to make a really good visionary leader? Like, What, what does that look like? What, who's that person? Well, it's somebody that I think understands and has a broader view and a, more of a strategic view than what they have in the past. And that strategy is not going to be just the here and now type of strategy. It's going to be that longer term vision. So how do you help an organization think about all right, this is where we are currently, but we know that we need to go there. How am I going to get this entire ship, which is a hard beast to move around, how am I going to get it where it needs to go and more effectively? I think that leaders also need to be very engaging. 
And it's the type of leader that can change a culture, that can bring people on board. And it's not so much the hierarchical leader anymore, or and not that we've had this in healthcare, but a dictatorial one. That's not something which plays, I think, as well anymore. It's more of an organizational leader that can bring many people, thousands of people in lots of cases, together towards a common goal, a common aim. And then I'd say that probably we need to have somebody who can be innovative and is able to take out risk. I think the risk factor is something which has been a longstanding challenge in healthcare. I think as an industry, and again, I'm making a generalization, but as an industry, I think that we've been averse to risk. And now we recognize that risk is coming at us as far as a requirement in almost everything we do, whether it ends up being taking on risk for patient lives or with a cost perspective or sharing uh, dollars with multiple different stakeholders. Uh, all this now is coming to bear to where I think that we need to have leaders that are going to be forced to be much more risk-friendly or at least consideration of risk in the future. And and those are three, but I think that there's probably you know three to five other ones as well. And I'm just going to pile on to what you're saying there. It, it's interesting that and I, I think this is a perception that's changing, but but people often think the status quo is somehow risk-free. You know, it's completely safe. And that's I think what, point. what yeah. people are starting to realize is that the status quo is not the safe haven. You know, like the house is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 to that point, that's exactly it. I mean, we cannot, the urgency is there now that maybe hadn't been in place before or not to the extent that it is now. The urgency is there to do something different. I got four great themes here from you today, my friend. The four points that you made just kind of summarizing our conversation relative to what do we need to be thinking about right now? Number one is the right analytics. You know, right. What are we measuring? Are we measuring the right things? Number two, it's understanding ideal outcomes. Number three is horizon scanning, making sure that we understand what the future holds so we can be proactive as opposed to fire people. <laughs> um, and then number four, making sure that we have a visionary leader and, and the structure in place to realize that vision, like, for example, a center for innovation or something along those lines. Yeah. And I would expand upon the third one, which is then understanding exactly how you respond to that disruption. And that is as important as identifying it. And an organization that is, okay, well, we see this coming. That looks scary or that looks cool, what are we going to do about it? So it's really that step of, okay, here's what's coming down the road. How is that going to impact our strategy, our revenue, our costs? What's that going to do to our infrastructure? How is that going to really significantly change us? And what are we going to do about it? Do we partner? Do we ignore it? Do we recognize that, you know what, this is way down the road. We don't need to worry about it. I'd argue the fact that there's probably some sort of more immediate reaction that an organization needs to take as opposed to just kind of kicking the can down the road. But it's important to make that decision, whether you do something now or whether you evaluate it in another six months, because that disruption could be here quicker than you realize. And so it's important to understand what that could be. Where can people get a hold of SG2 should they wish to have further conversations about what to do in this world of change? Right. Well, there's a website, of course, like with any good company, there's a website, but it's www.sg2.com. 
And folks that go there can, if they're part of a current organization that is part of our membership, they can sign up with an email and they can get access to the content as well as our experts. Or if they want more information, they can go ahead and request information via the website. Fantastic. Well, I thank you so much for being on the program, Chris. I certainly have learned a lot. Well, I have as well. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you, Stacey. So thank you very much for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.